Thank you, Doug. Great song, and right on the uh, mark for the message today. So we're talking about Advent, the coming or arrival of something especially momentous. And for Christians, the Advent is specifically the coming of the Messiah. And we use it in two ways, either his birth or his return. And so in the Advent season, we tend to move back, back and forth between those two ideas. <clears throat> this year, we're going to look at an important section of the Old Testament that anticipates the coming of the Messiah and... Uh, and actually helped people, I think, to recognize him when he did appear. And the song that Doug sang for us is actually from the section that we're going to look at this morning, which is Isaiah 7, 1 to 17. We're going to call it the sign of Emmanuel. <clears throat> so let's read these 17 verses. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the pool at the, uh, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabael king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. All right, well, uh, we need to understand the stage and the players here for this uh, event or series of events. So, first, the geopolitical stage. Uh, some of this will be familiar to you if you've been with us for the Hosea series that we did before this, because Hosea and the prophet Isaiah are contemporaries. Hosea functions primarily in the north kingdom and Isaiah primarily in the south. But uh, their lives overlap considerably, their periods of ministry, and we don't have any direct evidence, but it seems very likely to me that they knew each other. So we know some of the players already. Let's, uh, Let's look at this a little bit. 200 years before the events that we're reading about, this one area here was the kingdom of the kings of Israel. But when David, great King David's grandson was king, they had a civil war. And in that civil war, the kingdom of Judah remained under the leadership of uh, the house of David, and Jerusalem was the capital. The northern ten tribes of Israel seceded from the Union and formed the kingdom of Israel. The capital was here, Samaria. And uh, you remember they set up... uh, golden calves to worship at Bethel right here and then the other was up in the northern part of the country at the city of Dan. So those are the two primary players here. Hosea has ministered toward the northern kingdom primarily and uh, Isaiah is in Jerusalem and is focusing his attention primarily on the kingdom of Judah. Now, we've got a couple other players in what we just read. The kingdom of Aram, capital is Damascus, and the head of that, the king, is the name Rezin. And and then there is, just on the upper edge of our map, you'll see the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire is over here, largely toward the east and toward the north. So those are the main players involved here. They all get mentioned. The circumstances that immediately uh, are the background to this passage is that over a number of years, the Assyrian Empire, which is one of the 
main superpowers of that period of time, the empire has been expanding west and south. And so that's putting pressure on all of these small kingdoms. Remember, Assyria is to the, the north and the east, and to the south and west is Egypt, the other great superpower. And all these little kingdoms are in between. So when one or the other of the superpowers expands, the pressure is put on those kingdoms. And the, and the pressure is usually one of two things. Either you pay or you pay. Those are the options. You can pay tribute every year, heavy taxation, recognizing the authority of the superpower that's over you, or if you resist, then the superpower comes in and does its best to squash you, and uh, those are your two options, right? Neither one of them very attractive. So what is happening in what's taking place in Isaiah 7 is that the Assyrians are expanding, and uh, for some time, the kingdom of Aram and Damascus and the kingdom of Israel have been paying tribute. They've knuckled under to Assyria. But what has happened is that Assyria has had some other issues going on to the north and the east. So their attention has been directed not this direction, but this direction. And these smaller kingdoms then are sensing that Assyria may be at a point of weakness. Now, in fact, they're not, but it, because their attention is directed away, it seems like this might be a good time to make a break, right? So they say, uh, Aram and Israel get together and say, you know, if we can establish a coalition here, we can gain enough strength to resist Assyria and we won't have to pay the taxes. So let's try to do that. And wouldn't it be good if Judah would join with us? Look at the, uh, the additional strength we'd have if we could have a coalition of these three states together. So that's what they want to do. But when they talk to Ahaz, king in Judah, Ahaz reads the tea leaves very differently. Ahab says to himself, I don't think Assyria is as weak as these guys figure it is. And so this course is one of disaster. I'm not going to join. When that happens, it infuriates the king of Israel and the king of Aram, and they decided that in resisting Assyria, what they want to do is invade Judah, depose Ahaz, and install their own king. That's this guy, Tabael, who is mentioned here. We don't know who he is, but, but he's going to be the puppet king that they install so that they can maintain this uh, threefold alliance. So that's the background. Now, what we need to see is, and this, this is an important thing in this whole discussion, that obviously what this constitutes is a threat not just to King Ahaz, but remember, Ahaz is a distant descendant of King David. And that's where the story really turns here. 
This then is not just a threat to the current reigning monarch in Judah. It's a threat to David's heirs and to his house that rules in Judah. And you may recall from Old Testament history that that when David spoke with the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord made a marvelous promise to David. He said, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So obviously, the threat of Israel and Aram to Judah is a threat also to the promise that God has made to David. See how that works? Now this is is an important theme for us to think about as we're trying to understand the connection of the Old Testament with the New Testament. We've been working on that at different times. It's important to see that when you come seven, eight hundred years later to Jesus and people experience him and try to understand what God is doing in Jesus, that part of understanding who Jesus is goes all the way back to this promise made to David. Because Jesus is understood as the heir of that promise. How does, the, how does our New Testament start? Do you know the, the first verse? Matthew says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah is the kingly term, right? The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's not just a a throwaway line. For Matthew, that's critical to understanding the whole connection of Jesus with all that history, centuries and centuries that went before. What is God doing? What has he done in the coming of Jesus? Well, part of what he's done is he's kept his promise to David. This is David's son, the one who is born to be king. So, Isaiah the prophet looks at this threat from the north and uh, he meets Ahaz who's out inspecting the water supply. That's what it tells us, right? Why do you inspect the water supply? Well, in times of siege in the ancient world, you you need a couple things to maintain a siege, right? Or or to defend yourself. You got to have lots of food and even more you got to have a good supply of water. So Ahaz is out inspecting. He knows that war is coming. Isaiah goes out to encourage faith in him because we're told that when the people and Ahaz heard about the alliance in the north that is invading, it's got this beautiful line. The house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Yeah, the wind can do some real damage, can it? There's a, I don't know if that's a car or part of a shed or what, but uh, it's a goner anyway. And that's how Ahaz and his people are looking at this. 
They are at risk for their very survival. So their hearts are quaking with fear. To that, Isaiah comes with the purpose of encouraging them and stimulating faith. And he comes with a promise. The promise says, you will be protected. Do not fear. Verse 7 says, well, verse 6 is the, the northern conspirators. Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Actually, Isaiah is pretty dismissive about this northern threat. Uh, I like uh, the line here. Verse 4, it says, uh, the Lord says, Say to Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Referring to the two kings that are in alliance here. Two smoldering stubs of firewood. Pretty good image, huh? It's uh, logs that still have some, some heat in them, but they don't have much fire potential left. They're about burned out. And Isaiah, guided by the Lord, looks at this northern coalition and says, uh, there's some heat there, but, but it's not going to last. So don't be afraid. Stand firm in faith. Trust in God. God will keep his promises. He'll keep his promise to David. And God will keep his promise to Ahaz as well to protect him and to protect the city if, if they will believe. With the promise comes an invitation. It's the invitation to trust God. Stand firm in faith. Verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Have you seen this lighthouse picture before? Uh, it's, it's one that I really enjoy. Uh, I always like lighthouses, but this one in particular... Uh, Mighty power of the ocean storming against the lighthouse. Uh, but, but here's what I like the most. is this guy standing there with his hands in his pockets. Uh, relatively unconcerned. Right? Why? Because he knows the lighthouse. He knows that it's founded upon the rock. It's been well built. And it has resisted in the past the storms that have come. And so he's content to stand there in its protection. Well, that's the invitation to Ahaz. It's not that there isn't a real threat from the north. There is. But God's promise is that of protection and security. So the invitation comes, stand firm in your faith. Trust in God. And and what we find is that the Lord is so concerned that, that Ahaz, who's a relatively young man at this point, 
He's so concerned that Ahaz should actually pursue the course of faith that he says, in addition to the promise, I want you to ask for a sign. Ask for any sign you want. Verse 10 or verse 11, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Sky's the limit. Ask me for a sign because I want to confirm your faith and your trust that I will care for Jerusalem and I'll care for you. So we get this strange response from Ahaz. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Ask for a sign? Nope, not going to do that. Deuteronomy 6 says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, right? I mean, there's, a, there's a, an appeal to a kind of uh, piety here that on the surface might sound good, but Isaiah sees right through it. Isaiah says, hear now, you house of David, it is, not, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? So surely we shouldn't put God to the test as an expression of unbelief which says, God, I'm not really sure about you, so show me, uh, demonstrate that, that I'm wrong, prove that, that my doubt about you is correct. Uh, but what Isaiah is proposing is something very different. Isaiah is saying God is telling you to ask for a sign. God wants to confirm his word. Ahaz says, no, not going to do that. So in response, we come to this extraordinary verse that Doug sang about for us and that is so well known from the Advent stories. It's in, it's in Matthew. It's this prophecy of the coming of a child called Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, this is one of the really tough texts to understand, folks. So I'm going to give you my take on it and just let you know that there are plenty of people who disagree with me. But uh, uh, that's the way it is. Here's the way it makes some sense to me. I think this sign, the sign of the Emmanuel child, is when it is given by Isaiah inherently ambiguous. There's a lot of things about it that just You say, what does this mean after all? Now, when you come to the New Testament and you come to Matthew, Matthew tells the story this way. There was a man named Joseph who is a distant descendant of King David. Remember, that's how the gospel starts. You've got to have have a Messiah who is in the line of David. So this man, Joseph, is a distant descendant of King David. He is engaged to be married to a young woman named Mary, 
They have not yet consummated the marriage, and Joseph, to his consternation, finds out that Mary is pregnant. And he assumes the worst, and that's understandable, right? He assumes the worst, that she has been unfaithful to the vows of her betrothal, and so he decides that he's going to uh, divorce her. And uh, as he contemplates how to do that, He has a vision from an angel, and the angel says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because things are not as they appear. She's pregnant, but she's not been unfaithful to her vows to you. Rather, she is pregnant by the supernatural activity of the Holy Spirit. So go ahead and take her to be your wife, and... Then the angel, well, maybe it's Matthew or it's the angel. We don't know because you don't have quotation marks in the ancient text. But let's assume it's the angel. The angel goes on to say, don't be afraid to take her to be your wife because this is what the prophet spoke about. And then quotes Isaiah 7:14: The virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. So that's the reassurance for Uh, Joseph, and uh, the story goes on from there. So for Matthew, as as he tells the story to us, it's not ambiguous at all. It's a prophecy that a virgin, without the instrumentality of the normal means of sexual intercourse, will conceive and have a child, and this child will be Emmanuel. When we look at at Isaiah, however, and the circumstances of the day, it's not nearly as clear that something like that is in view. Uh, the who is, right? That, that's a big question. Is this, is, this a vir- is this talking about a virgin birth, or is this talking about a young woman who's yet unmarried but is going to get married and going to have a child? When is this going to happen? Well, if we only read Matthew, it sounds like it's not going to happen for 700 plus years. But when we read in this whole section, remember the Lord says to Ahaz, ask a sign. Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask for a sign. Isaiah says, okay, you're getting a sign anyway. The sign is, that a virgin will conceive or a young woman will conceive, give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. How long is that? Parents, how long was it before your kids knew the difference between right and wrong? One year? Two years? Pretty early, right? So before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So in a a couple years, here's the sign, Ahaz. A young woman is going to conceive and bear a child named Emmanuel. And within the space of a couple years, these two kings, this alliance that you are in such fear of, is going to be gone. Those two kings are going to be gone. 
and their land is going to be laid waste. Now, I can see how something like that could be assigned to Ahaz. It's hard to me to see how the birth of Jesus 700 years later is assigned to Ahaz. Well, there's other ambiguity here too. What does the name mean, Emmanuel? It can mean God is with us. Now that would be that would be a great encouragement for people in any period of time, wouldn't it? In Isaiah's time, the truth, a child named God is with us. In spite of all these dangers, in spite of the threat to the succession of King David, God is with us. God keeps his word. That's encouraging. And the truth is still encouraging today, isn't it? In the midst of uh, pandemics and rocking economy and all that kind of stuff, God is with us. That, that is still encouraging. But this name can also mean not just God is with us, but God with us. And that's a little bit different, isn't it? That, that's a stronger sense. It's one thing <clears throat> to say that a child's name is God is with us. It's another thing to say that a child's name is God with us. Do you hear the difference? Do you get the difference? The second form is much stronger. And if you are a Jew in Ahaz's day, actually even if you're a Jew in the New Testament period, That's a lot to get your mind around. To speak about a human being as being God with us, that's an extraordinary statement. So there's ambiguity, not just about who this might apply to and where it applies, but also even what the name means. And so, the way I've come to understand this, it's not unique to me, but, but uh, it's just one view among many, but this is the one that makes sense to me, that this prophecy that's given and this sign has a double reference. I think it has a reference in Ahaz's day to some woman who bears a child around that same time and names him Emmanuel. Probably she doesn't even know that this prophecy has been given. But she gives him that name. God is with us. It's a time of stress and difficulty. And and so the name is a good name, right? It reflects the times. But I think as Matthew reads the Old Testament, and and we know that the New Testament writers quoted the 
prophecies of Isaiah more than all the other prophets combined. Isaiah is the book they look to to understand what God was doing in the coming of Jesus. And so as Matthew mulls over these various texts, he sees in this text not just a reference to Isaiah's day and Ahaz the king. He sees something much deeper and more profound. He sees that the young woman, the virgin, is is one who bears this child miraculously. He finds that already suggested in the Isaiah text. He finds that this term Emmanuel doesn't just mean God is with us, but as he comes to understand who Jesus is, he understands it in the strongest possible form. This child is God, the eternal God, Yahweh of old, who is now with us in the person of Jesus. He is here. He is the word, as John would say, he is the word that has become flesh. He's become human and dwelt among us. So I think there's a double reference. But the sign certainly has application to Isaiah's day and specifically to Ahaz and his people, people who were living in fear. And this comes as a statement of both hope and warning. Of course, it's obviously one of hope. Here's God's promise. He is with his people. Are you afraid of these two smoldering logs that are coming against you? They're not going to last long. Don't worry about them. Stand firm in your faith. It's an invitation to hope and trust and faith and all of that. But it's also a warning. The warning is this. You can trust in the God who makes promises and keeps his promises and defends his people. Or you can trust in your own devices. And that is exactly what Ahaz chooses to do. Ahaz chooses to play with fire. And that's what's behind verse 17, where Isaiah says, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father. That's the house of of Jotham, but more distantly, it's the house of David, right? The Lord will bring on you and your people a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. That's the civil war 200 years before. There's a time coming that hasn't been seen for 200 years, and here's what that time will be. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, what's behind this? Remember that Israel and Aram are allying together for the purpose of resisting Assyrian aggression. Assyria has this reputation for extraordinary cruelty. And, uh, and that's coming. And Ahaz see, sees it, and Ahab 
makes a, not Ahab, sorry, Ahaz makes a decision that he's not just going to wait out this uh, threat from the north. He's going to take some action. What does he do? He sends word to the Assyrian conqueror to the north and says, look, I'm in a tough place here. Will you come and call off the dogs here? Will you invade Israel and Aram? And if you do, I'll up my tribute money. I'll give you some special incentive to come and do that. Well, Assyria would have done it anyway. But uh, Judah has now done a couple things. Judah has begun additional payment to Assyria, and they have called attention of the Assyrian conquerors to the little hill country of Judah. Uh, Maybe they would have done, you know, maybe they would have gotten by without much threat if they had kept their mouth shut, but they didn't. And Ahaz then, in, in trusting in geopolitical maneuverings, last week we talked about the idolatry of geopolitical power, right? Uh, here's the idolatry coming back in Judah. Play the game of politics and see if you can win. But Isaiah says that's not a game you're going to win. God is going to bring on Judah tough times like you haven't seen in 200 years. He's going to bring the king of Assyria. And so in the end, the devastation of Judah will be worse because of Ahaz's policy than it would have been if he had just waited. Playing with fire. Hope and warning. That's what we get, right? And and so as we begin Advent... We say, you know, we look back and God has fulfilled his promises made through Isaiah the prophet in extraordinary ways, ways that were beyond the imagination of the people who originally heard the promise. God has kept his word. God always keeps his word. It's impossible for God to lie, says the Bible. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. With us in Matthew's day, with us forever. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. In spite of pandemics, I will never leave you or forsake you. In spite of the difficulties of the economy, in spite of threats to your health, in spite of the disruption that it has made in all our lives. I will never leave you or forsake you because I am Emmanuel, God revealed in human form, who is with his people to the end of days. And you and I are invited to rest our lives on that. To trust in him. To say, right now, today, Lord, I want to recognize your presence here with us, here with me. And I'm going to be okay, even though this time may be hard, even though I have some special challenges maybe nobody else knows about, but God, you know about them, and you promise to be with me. 
that sound good? Does that sound like gospel, like good news? Let's pray together. Lord, we bow in your presence again today. We bow with thankful hearts. We exalt you as the great king who has come and who is coming. And when you come again, Lord, you will set all the world to rights. You will bring peace, comprehensive well-being, and your people will flourish in the goodness of your reign. Thank you for this hope. Help us, Lord, in this Advent season as we recall the way light shone into the darkness of this world so long ago. Help us to be people who are marked by faith, who stand firm in their faith, who believe all your promises and trust you for all the challenges that they face. Thank you for this chance this morning to to be refreshed by your word and by your spirit and by the truth of your love for your people. We commit ourselves to you with thankful hearts in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. You are dismissed. Go in peace. Thank you.